When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Rebecca Mackay, author of the novel, I Have Some Questions for You. No matter what you're writing, you're always controlling the reader's attention. And you're always controlling or thinking about what the reader knows and when they know it and what the character knows and when they know it. We'll be back with Rebecca Mackay after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. When you donate to First Draft, you're joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that is committed to sharing the insights and challenges of the writing life. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free to you. But it is not without expense to me, in hard costs and in labor. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours an episode. There's also equipment and subscriptions to interview platforms and sound transcripts and editing software and hosting services for the sound and a website for the archive. And those things added up are not cheap. And all of this, this whole entire colossal effort, takes a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition every week. And please understand, I am the entire show from start to finish. I am the editor, the interviewer, the reader, the researcher, the staff. Sometimes the staff doesn't perform as well as I'd like, but I am the only person performing. So why not consider supporting a woman with a dream to share literary wisdom from some of the world's best writers in a podcast platform? I would say with the number of episodes I've produced, which is actually more than in the archive, so more than 400, my track record is pretty stellar. And please beat the odds of having to listen to this message seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. 
Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with Rebecca Mackay, author of the novels The Great Believers, The Hundred Year House, and The Borrower, and the short story collection Music for Wartime. She is a recipient of the American Library Association Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, among other honors. The Great Believers was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. She teaches at the MFA program at the University of Nevada, Reno at Lake Tahoe, and Northwestern University, and she is the artistic director of Story Studio in Chicago. Her new novel is called I Have Some Questions for You and tells the story of Bodie Kane, a successful film professor and podcaster who returns to her New Hampshire boarding school as a teacher. Upon her return, Bodie becomes more and more obsessed with a tragic incident that happened while she was in high school. Her former roommate, Thalia, was murdered their senior year in high school. And the school's athletic director, a young black man named Omar Evans, was convicted of the crime. But Bodie has doubts about his guilt and uses the class she is teaching as an instrument to explore what happened to Thalia and who the true culprit is. We began the interview with Rebecca Mackay sharing her interest in cultivating a mystery. I, I mean, I love mysteries. I don't tend to read like cozy mysteries, which sound fun, but I just don't tend to read them. But I love a really smart, like I love ton of French, you know, like a smart psychological mystery. And and I do, you know, I do love like an Agatha Christie or like a Walter Mosley, like a, you know, a smart kind of like series kind of mystery. I think those are great. But um, uh, I love real life mysteries too. I, I do the deep dives like so many people do on unsolved cases, past or present. And I think you should write about the things that obsess you. I heard Alexander Chi once say that what you, sh- you should put in your book, like the clickbait that you're susceptible to, not like seven celebrity unibrows, not that stuff, but like, what is the stuff that would totally obsess you and throw you off track and you lose an hour on a rabbit hole, that should be what you're writing about. And in my case, oh my God, the, you know, any story about, oh God, they finally figured out who this, you know, solved this cold case from 1952 or whatever, I'm all over it. And of course that's problematic in some ways. Like I wanted to explore why we're so drawn to that and the dark side of all that. But I, I had so much fun making a mystery here. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Did you feel a certain sort of pressure to make it be something that their reader wouldn't figure out? And was it hard for you to know what the conclusion would be? It's a good question. I mean, I I definitely, I didn't want everything tied up neatly at the end, but I did want, by the end of the book, I did want the reader to know what happened. And I wanted to know what happened. I can't remember exactly when I decided pretty early on, I knew what the, you know, what the solution was, what had gone down. But yeah, no, you don't want people to see it coming. You absolutely don't. And I am, I'm always, you know, it doesn't have to be literally a mystery, but I'm always so, so thrilled when I'm reading or watching, you know, a great TV show and something happens that you just were not expecting 
or you realize something and you go, oh my God, I didn't see, you know, I didn't see it. I wanted that feeling, right? And I didn't want things to come out of nowhere, but I also didn't want them too obvious, easy to find. You know, it's, I'm not going for like an Agatha Christie type conclusion where you go, oh, these 17 clues were planted there all along and I missed it. You know, I I wanted a solution in the end that made sense, that, that tracks with everything else we know. No matter what you're writing, you're always controlling the reader's attention and you're always controlling or thinking about what the reader knows and when they know it and what the character knows and when they know it. It didn't feel that different from writing any other book. My second novel is a book called The Hundred Year House, and it it has some sort of mysterious elements to it. We go back in time and we learn more things that happened. And it, it, so, you know, not, not a murder mystery, but uh, felt similar to that in the, the careful reveal of information. I felt like you had a lot of balls in the air in terms of almost like some of the craft decisions you made or the devices you were using. And I'll explain that in a minute. But basically, you know, the story is about Bodhi, who is now about 41 years old, and she graduated from a boarding school in New Hampshire called Granby. And her roommate sophomore year, Thalia, was murdered. And it becomes this mystery and open question for her as the years go on because they did convict someone named Omar who was black and was worked at the school as an athletic trainer they convicted him but the evidence was never great and over the years I think she went along with her life and then she saw something on Facebook about it that sort of brought it up for her. And she went back to the school. She teaches film studies. She has her own very successful podcast. It's about um, the history of women in Hollywood, actually. So it's yeah. called Starlit Fever. It, it has like some nefarious things or how, how these women were abused. And so she goes back to school and starts interrogating this mystery. And she's teaching a podcasting class and she gets kind of one of the kids is doing an investigation into this death that happened at the school. And that's kind of her way in. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, her ex-husband to be is also having sort of a me too moment. He's an artist and he has that going on. So she has a lot going on and she has her own difficult past. And we are told the story from her point of view. But it's not really only her point of view. And that's what I'm really curious about in terms of craft, just in the sense that sometimes you feel like there's almost a chorus. I mean, it is her point of view, but like in your opening page, it almost feels like a chorus. And she's telling the story, but at times she's directing what she says to a teacher that she suspects might be the murderer. And At times, she you're adding in something that happened to Omar in the in the prison. She is interrupts almost the narrative to say what's happening with him at the time. So, as a reader, I was like, "Wow, she's doing a lot at once." And I, I'm mm-hmm. just curious about your reaction to that and and um, yeah. thinking about all these craft choices. Yeah, you know, it's it's tricky because you know. There's definitely, there would definitely be a point of too much, Um, either too much, you know, too many plot elements or too many narrative lenses. Um, But at the same time, I, I wanted, you know, this big kind of not maximalist, that might not be the right word, but I wanted a novel that had a lot of stuff in it. And, um, you know, when you, as you find yourself adding more elements, um, more things that a reader would have to, you know, juggle um, or contend with, you, you know, you really have to question why you're adding those or, you know, am I just doing this to do like a gymnastics routine here? Or am I doing this for the story? And you also have to think really critically about which ones really serve the narrative and which ones could go, which ones you could save for another, another book. Um, I, you know, I teach novel writing um, a lot and I have a lot of first time novelists where, oh my God, there are like 17 different big tricky things they want to throw in there. Like, you know, it's going to have 18 points of view and it's going to be told backwards, but also upside down and also takes place on every continent. And um, my job is usually to talk them down from that, right? To be like, listen, 
you know, you can, you might, you're going to see books out there, like say the blind assassin, right. Where Margaret Atwood is doing like not books within books within books and like, and newspaper articles are mixed in and, and all this other stuff, but it was not her first novel. <laughs> and also she's doing so much the whole time to orient us, to help us out. And so the more I put into a book like this, that's what I'm trying to do too, is, you know, I'm my job is to make life difficult for my characters, not to make life difficult for my readers or for me. <laughs> so all of those things serve a purpose. I, and I think, you know, craft-wise that writers would have a lot to learn from this. So let's talk just a little bit even about the first page. I mean, it is still in her voice, but there's something that sounds different about it. And partly because she's really talking almost to the reader because you begin with, you've heard of her, I say, a challenge and assurance to the woman on the neighboring hotel barstool who's made the mistake of striking up a conversation to the dentist who runs out of questions about my kids and asks what I've been up to myself. She's kind of having a conversation a little bit with herself in front of you of saying, wasn't it the one where she was stabbed in? No, the one where she got in a cab with different girl, the one where she went to the frat party, the one where she used he used a stick, the one where he used a hammer, the one where she picked him up from rehab and he, no. So you're kind of listing all of these female deaths that we've heard about in the news and you don't ever say their name, but we know who a lot of them are. And I thought it was such um, an interesting way and there's an interesting rhythm in there to get into the book. So I just wanted to ask you about writing that, if that was like something that came later, if you agonized over it. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right. Um, it did come a little bit later. So here's what happened. You know, throughout the book, um, I have sections like that. Basically, I wanted for there to be some big story in the news that would be really throwing Bodhi, my main character, off balance. Um, you know, just like, that happens to us. There's there's a story in the news that just um, makes you think about your own stuff and agitates you. I didn't want it to be a real case. I didn't want to use like the Christine Blasey Ford testimony, for instance, and have that be, you know, then have to like give that its due. And I also didn't want to make something up out of whole cloth. And then I had to invent all the details of this news case. And it it's going to get confused with the details of the case that we're actually dealing with. So my solution to that was to make it basically be all of these cases simultaneously. Um, and basically, you know, it's my narrator saying, I'm not even going to tell you which one it is. It was this, it was also this, it was also this, um, you know, let's just say it was all of them. And, um, and we treat it like that throughout. And so this, this introduction is kind of prologue, I didn't, you know, I, I don't call it a prologue because if you call anything a prologue, readers will skip it. So we just don't call it anything. And then there's chapter one, but uh, that it secretly is a prologue. So in that stealth prologue, I, I wrote that later because I wanted sort of a tonal introduction to all of that. And um, I wanted something, you know, a little bit more ambient, a little bit more sweeping than just you know, one time I turned, I got on Facebook and I saw this thing. I wanted, like you said, a little bit more of a chorus before we really got into the blow by blow of a scene. And then that has echoes, you know, throughout the book. 
And I, I would say like one of the other things that it does for the reader is it really makes the story bigger that mm. it's it it makes me think that you as a writer have something to say and obviously you do in this book but you have something to say about all these women that are disappeared and murdered and the way that they are in the news and I think mm. your book points to that a lot so I'm I'm also curious about almost from like a political social standpoint your thoughts about the 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 value of women's lives. Right. Yeah. I mean, th there is this kind of, you know, litany effect and, and you could do the same thing with say mass shootings or police brutality where the total of this list just weighs on you and certain cases stand out, but other ones blend together. You know, if you fit a demographic, like if you're a woman or if you're um, a person of color, you feel like you'd be much more singled out by police brutality, for instance, that's not just, oh my God, there's so many, it really waits on you subconsciously, consciously, you walk around with this, this phone book of these things in your head, right? If nothing else, I would say that, you know, this is a character for whom that those lists weigh heavily. She does make sure to say, actually, to one of her students that the majority of victims of violent crime are men. Um, women are not the majority of murder victims. But when men die violently, it is, um, it's very often things like an altercation in a bar. I don't know if they actually count like warfare in that, in those statistics, but there are gang related things. There's, there's all kinds of, you know, many, many different reasons that men might be more the victims of violent crimes, but for a violent crime by someone, you know, those tend to be women and a domestic partner, right? Those tend to be women. And it's something that, you know, I think if you're a person and you go, well, but, you know, yes, there's, you know, it, this is obviously a huge problem, but I'm not in a gang. So, you know, as a man, I don't feel like that is going to be a, a big threat in my life. But as a woman, you don't get to say, well, but I'm not, but I'm not at risk because you just, by virtue of being a woman, you just are. And I think that's something that women I know are, are certainly, that is certainly on their mind constantly. It's something that I, you know, I, I wanted for this character to have this sort of just pent up anger, having known, you know, someone who obviously, you know, was her, her roommate was murdered, regardless of who did it was murdered. And it seems to have been by someone she knew. And then to know that you are always going to be at risk in that same, in that same demographic, there's just a, a kind of a pent up anger that, that needed to come through here. And do you have that too? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know any woman who doesn't. And I, I think there are times when it comes out, right? There, it might be a certain case, like you saw, you know, just the way that people responded to the Christine Blasey Ford testimony, digging up things from their own past and going, yeah, this, you know, this wasn't okay. It's not like you walk around all day seething necessarily, right? But you see something happen um, I think this is what, you know, when a case captures people's attention, it is often because we relate in some way. And, you know, maybe just because that person, you knew someone who knew that person, or they're from the same town as you, or something similar happened to you. Um, but the number of, of people who just related so strongly to Christine Blasey Ford, and then you see this, you know, just helpless outrage over what's going on, there are these moments when, you know, someone turns the burner on and things and things are just going to boil over. So you, you mentioned a few times in your response, you how you wanted the character to react or feel about mm -hmm. these things. So I think we should talk a little bit about Bodhi. You know, she's 41. She's from L.A. and coming back to this school. She ended up in the school basically because she got a scholarship. Her father has died. Her brother has died. Yeah. Her mother's not healthy um, mentally. And so she lives with this Mormon family in Indiana. And they went, the father went to the school. So she ends up at the school and she feels like such an outcast. And she has all of this pain in, in her own family life. And she goes to this very, very privileged school where there are not that many people on scholarships. And she 
never really quite fits in. She makes a friend or two and she has all these assumptions that then later when she goes back 23 years later, she has to maybe challenge how other people really did fit in or not, or who was, who was maybe not as good as she thought they were. So what was, um, you know, when you started forming her character and her background, what was really important to you? You know, I think it's, it's so hard. It would be so hard to write a high school story, let alone a boarding school story and not have it be about an outsider. Um, that's just, that's the story we expect, but I, I wanted to subvert that then in many ways, you know, she feels like an outsider. She is in many ways, but what she has to reconcile with later is that she was not nearly as much of an outsider as she thought first in the sense that she probably did know things that would have been helpful to the police back in 1995. And then later in you know, just the understanding that other people were also miserable for other reasons. And that she, despite feeling like an outsider at this school, she's still a product of this school and this incredible education. And there were still other people like Omar, the man who's in prison, who were fundamentally excluded in a, in a terrible way by the school. Um, And it's not her fault, but it's still a system that she was part of. Um, just as, you know, the carceral system is not her fault, but it's still a system that she's part of. Whiteness is not her fault, but it's still a system that she's part of. And I wanted someone with a with a unique background, you know, you, you don't want the cardboard, the kid, you know, the cardboard cutout kid who's on scholarship because um, their dad works at the plant or something, which is fine. But I, I wanted something really specific and really unique. So so for some reason, I went with Indiana Mormons. <laughs> That's what I went with. <laughs> Did anything surprise you about her formation as a character when you were writing it that you just really were like, wow, this really wants to come in. And I didn't know this was going to come in. <laughs> That's interesting. I think there's, there's a romance. I, I won't give too much away, but she reconnects with several people from high school and um, she's divorced and ends up connecting with one of them romantically. And that was not something that I had originally intended. So I was writing a couple different characters and one of them, it just started to feel like, oh, like, I don't know. I kind of have a crush on this character <laughs> that I'm that I'm making up out of my own mind, you know, um, and started to kind of think that they would, you know, that they should get together. And, and then they do. Similarly, you know, another character that she might have um, been, you know, really maybe was into in high school, who's uh, not a, necessarily a great guy, as it turns out. So yeah, that that surprised me because this this romantic connection was not something that I ever particularly saw being on the horizon. And then I was like, hey, yeah, go good, good job. Go get it. One of the things she says early in the book, really early is the need to keep busy is both a symptom of high functioning anxiety and the key to my success. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you as a writer feel that at all. Oh yeah, no, that, that is, you know, Bodhi is not me, but that is, that is a point of overlap for sure. I was just recently finally diagnosed with ADHD, which is, you know, just one of these big, Oh no, duh kind of moments. It, It fits you know, for me, like, yeah, I I need to be just constantly doing stuff. And if I don't, I just space out. I needed someone who, like me, um, is just constantly looking for the next thing and is not content to sit back and, and be happy. But like, no, I can take on more stuff. I can take on more stuff. As a writer, I mean, I think you you kind of have to be like that because the the idea of starting a novel is kind of bananas, you know, to go, I'm going to spend five years making up this thing. You have to have this incredible optimism along with your creative energy to go, yeah, I can, I can do that. I can take, (laughs) yeah, that's, that's, you know, a point of overlap. And there are a few, you know, there, there are a few points of overlap between me and any character that I write there, there have to be just for me to really connect with them, write myself in there. And not necessarily any more for for my main characters than for a minor character. But in this case, that's that's one thing we have in common. Are you going to try medication for the ADHD? I have. I am on medication and it's great. Oh, my God. So yesterday 
I did not know that I hadn't taken my meds. I didn't take my allergy medicine either. Which I, and I, you know, I was like, why am I itchy? Why is my throat? But I was a disaster all day. It was, it was an interesting litmus test because it was not a placebo effect since I thought I'd taken my medication. I couldn't read. I got on the highway going the wrong direction. And this is, I've been on this medication for like six months now. This was like, oh God, the old me. Just it's like, you know, like I'm I'm simultaneously being an adult and also babysitting a toddler who is also me. <laughs> like, just like, come on, get your act together. I do sometimes go off of it just because you're not, you know, it's it's healthy to sometimes go off on the weekend or something. But I, I usually know that I'm going off of it. And it's when I have a really low-key day. <laughs> um, and this I was I had a day with interviews and I met with a student and I was doing all this other stuff and I was just my old messy self. And it was such a relief to realize that at the end of the day and go, Oh my God, I didn't take my meds. And then today to this morning to take that pill and be like, okay, I know I'm going to be able to function. It's huge, huge. The, the only people getting diagnosed when I was in school were little white boys. It was like little white boys named Tyler who were always falling out of their chair. That's who got diagnosed girls. It was like, you know, cause like I was spacey. I was not, I'm verbally hyperactive. I'm not physically hyperactive or if I, I, it's like, I need to, you know, fidget, but I'm not, it's not like flopping all over the place. I got disciplined all the time for being spacey. Like, why aren't you paying attention? But nobody put that together. And then for, you know, for people of color, it was, it, you know, it's so often seen as a disciplinary issue rather than, okay, this kid, you know, is neurodivergent. Um, so I know, I, you know, a lot of people getting diagnosed now in adulthood um, who should have been diagnosed at the age of 10 and would have made a big difference. But, oh, well, I was wondering, because I have a lot of friends, too, who are in their 40s and 50s who are now being women who are now being diagnosed and taking medicine and is a game yeah. changer. But I was also wondering if there was any fear that it would mess with your creativity. Not at all. No, no, I don't need to be spaced out to be creative. (laughs) I'd rather be able to focus. It's all good. It's not like it turns me into some like CPA, you know, (laughs) it's CPAs can be creative, nothing against the CPAs, but it's not like it turns me into this like left brain thinker. Um, It's just, um, it's, it's like feeling clear headed. That's all it is. And it's, it's God, it's huge. So, you know, one of the other devices we mentioned was that there is this general sense, um, even when she she only mentions it. I mean, she mentions it sporadically throughout the narration where she's directing what she's saying to this teacher that she thinks could be the murderer because she's convinced that it's not Omar. And she Mm -hmm. says, like, you, Mr. Block, or you this. So I'm curious about that device. Right. I mean, there's always, I'm always interested in who the implied listener of any book is. And there are authors who, and and books where that's made really explicit, Um, even if it's just like Nabokov and Lolita being like, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, right? Meaning like, he doesn't doesn't mean a literal jury, but like, hey, people out there, anyone who will listen, let me tell you why I'm not so bad. Um, And in other cases, it's a you know, very specific character who's being addressed, um, which is what I'm doing here. Even when it's not, there's still that question of like, well, am I talking to you like you know these people or like you don't know these people? So there's a choice to make, right? To to say like, you know, Mitzi, a literary podcaster, blah, 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 versus saying Mitzi and just going and we catch on later to who you are as if we already knew you. So I'm, I'm always really interested in that. And in this case, I, I wish I could remember why and when, but this is so early. And, and voice for me, which I think this is part of, is something that comes out very instinctively, intuitively. There are other things I have to labor over, but but voice, um, I just tend to to kind of take it and run. And so I don't remember going, you know what, I'm going to make it second person. But I did. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's the you of the title. I have some questions for you at least theoretically, although we've got questions for everybody. But that allowed me to, to figure out what what is she going to explain? What's she not going to explain? You know, how is she positioning herself? 
Um, and, and it allowed me to get a lot of her, you know, that frustration and that anger, it allowed me to bring those out and channel them in a certain direction. So I want to talk a little bit about just boarding school because it is a mystery, but it's also a boarding school novel. You live at one, you went to one and there's something just so inherently interesting about it, but it also, I would think you have to be sort of careful because it could become some kind of caricature of itself. Oh God. Yeah. It so often is. I, I, I really... I, I roll my eyes a lot at depictions of boarding schools um, in books and on TV and in the movies. Um, there's this, you know, like I, jo- I always joke, like it's it's always fall. <laughs> the leaves are always changing. Um, certain tropes that are that are funny, but there's also like you can tell if you're reading a novel by someone who absolutely it's it's fine. They're allowed to, but you can tell if they didn't go to boarding school. They, you know, it's these little things where you're like, how did a freshman get a single dorm room? Like what? That's not, that's not a thing. It just kind of blows a hole in it a little bit for me. But yeah, I live on campus of the boarding school where my husband teaches. I was a day student uh, at a boarding school. And the weird part is it's the same school. So I went to the school as a day student. I left, I went to college, I went to grad school. I met my husband in grad school I dragged him back to Chicago. He was a high school English teacher, and this is where he got the job. So we've then lived on campus ever since, and my daughter's a freshman now, my older daughter, which is really cool. Um, but it's it's a fascinating environment. I think for some people, you know, it, it's either fascinating because you know the world and you want to read about it, or it can be fascinating because you don't know the world and you want to know everything about it because it feels like this, this mysterious thing. I think, though, that the real interest for me and for a lot of people is it's kind of a locked box. It's like a hothouse environment. You have this limited cast of people stuck together. It's this fundamentally permanent place. Like these these places tend to be old, a lot of them, but it's also transitory. Um, you know, it's, it is this very permanent place that people pass through for four years maximum and for the most formative time in their lives. And then they're gone the generations move real fast that way, you know, like, like just four year generations, then the layers of history then that happen in a place like that. Um, so I was, you know, living where I do, I was always going to write a boarding school novel eventually. Uh, people would ask if I was going to write a boarding school novel. And I would say like, yeah, I'll write it on my deathbed. So no one thinks I'm writing about them. Um, but then this, this story became too compelling for me. And I, you know, I made this school different in every almost every possible way from the from the one where I live um part including geographically you know I live outside Chicago and um the the school in this book is is a really traditional east coast old boarding school in New Hampshire um which was you know fun. and and I I know some of those schools too I've done readings there or I have friends who teach there um so it was it was fun to invent a school completely and you talk about this idea about justice and what this is. There's a page late in the book. There was like a Dateline episode that yes. um, is fodder for Bodhi to think about things. And I think at the end, I think you're talking about the Dateline episode. At the end, there's this voiceover of someone named Dr. Meyer, who mm-hmm. I think was a, a teacher at the school. Yeah, And he says, you know, we'll never feel we have justice he said unless someone confesses his voice was impossibly old you get one man out of jail and put another man in is this justice we'll never know it'll never feel right and so I think there's also this idea I mean obviously Bodhi's kind of I mean, I think she's almost more moved to find out what really happened than to exonerate Omar. But of course, exonerating him is part of that process. But just this idea of what is justice really? Right. Yeah, I would say I would say that early on, she thinks it's correctly solved. Pretty quickly, she realizes that it probably wasn't. And it becomes about, wait a second maybe that's the right guy, but something feels off what really happened. And by the last quarter of the book, when things have really progressed and we skip ahead a couple of years, uh, four years actually, and they're they're going through 
a hearing for a retrial, it has become very much about Omar, um, about the experience she has realized that he's been having in prison, about the injustice of all of this. So, you know, it is an awakening for this character in many ways. Um, I think this, you know, we tend to feel, you know, you hear a case like oh, they, they solved it, the right guy's in prison and prison for most for the population that is not affected personally by prison what prison is is an excuse never to think about that person again prison is like that is a closed book not gonna you know the end of course we know but we don't think about someone's life going on inside prison um and she you know she was very much of that mindset they solved it and it's over and um, when she realizes that's not the case, this awareness of what it means, you know, of what goes on in the car carceral system, of what goes on inside prisons, of the impossibility of getting a retrial, um, uh, become very real to her. One of the elements of the book of her talking to Mr. Block, which, you know, she's convinced that it's him. And part of the reason could be that he had maybe some predatory inclinations towards students in the past and we won't say who it was in the end but in any case whether it was him or not he was still the idea is that people like him are still implicated that mm -hmm. if you are the one that maybe he killed her maybe he didn't I'm not going to say but whether he did or not he still contributed Right. As did so many other people. Right. Um, and, and certainly she's not ever going to let him off the hook in terms of just the damage that someone like that can do. Um, but in the end, you know, Bodhi is is really, you know, indicting herself, the whole school, all of the students, um, you know, all the people who were complicit in not speaking out about things. Um, you know, and you look back, I, you know, I look back on high school, um, the things that we knew about um, or thought we knew about and just didn't say anything. It's horrendous. It's it's so alarming to think about. And it's, it's one way that times have changed, I think, for the better. Yeah. I mean, she has a tormentor. She has a, Bodhi had a yeah. tormentor in high school who would just basically say all this sexual stuff around her, around all these other people and just bullied her with mm -hmm. impunity yeah yeah and it, you know just it's just not that uncommon you know um I I would think it's you know so much you know at least in most parts of America let's say I can't speak to everywhere and, and definitely there are places where I don't think they've gotten the memo <laughs> in the U.S. but in many places you know that that's that's the stuff that would be first of all faculty would call that out. Secondly, students would feel so much more empowered to say, oh my God, stop that. Um, which I, you know, I, we were, did not feel like, I can't think of it. I can think of so many instances of people harassing other people, um, in high school and, and not a single instance that I can remember where someone called the person out and that person was in someone went, Hey, you, you got to stop. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's, it's something that, um, you know, one, one of the generational differences that I was interested in highlighting here, because when she does go back to teach at Granby, there are these young students who are, you know, high school students in 2018 um, and they have such a different perspective on things. It's not that they have everything figured out, <laughs> um, but they they just, you know, they have a really, really different perspective. And she, you know, realizes how horrified they would be by some of the things that not only that she experienced, but things that she took part in, um, which I, I think uh, for any of us looking back is the case. And, and for kids who are in high school now, they're going to look back in 30 years and feel the same way. Because <laughs> uh, it's not like you get to some point of uh, full enlightenment and you've solved it all. You know, everyone thinks they've solved it all when they're like 18, but nobody has. One more element of the book is that her husband is an artist and he's having this Me Too moment where some things are living out on Twitter and basically 
he when he was an artist in his 30s, he dated a very young woman. But it doesn't yes. appear to Bodhi that anything was wrong except for that this woman is calling him out because maybe she feels like she was harmed. But it really seems like there wasn't any harm. And so there's a lot of questions there about veracity and who you believe and what one person's experience, how they can control the narrative that isn't maybe true. Yeah. Cause this is the thing, you know, the last thing I want to do is go in and with a hypothesis, with a thesis, with a, you know, this is the way things are and we've figured it out. And I, I want to contradict myself. I want to get paradox in there. I want to get gray area because gray area is what novels can do that Twitter, for instance, cannot do very well. Twitter, social media is not very good at nuance. That's what art is for. Even in cases, you know, there there have been cases, for instance, coming up with someone getting kind of called out, canceled um, in the literary world, in in the arts, in, in other areas where people I know, sometimes including me, are going, this this is jumping the shark. This is not like this person does not deserve public censure just for not being good at relationships or whatever this is. But none of us is going to say that publicly. You're not going to be the person on Twitter to go, I don't think it's that bad because then you are right in the line of fire. I get DMs from other people about this, but you there's just not a lot of room for disagreement or nuanced discourse. But this is something that books can do. Bodhi, the character, yeah, definitely feels like this woman is, you know, is being ridiculous and her husband is immature, but did nothing wrong. The book does not come down on, on one side or the other, you know, I, and this is, you know, one, one point in a constellation that includes things like this high school harasser and this predatory teacher. It's part of the mess, um, part of the, the, big gray, gray area mess that the, uh, that I'm trying to make in general. And, and people, you know, will come out with their own ideas about it. In the acknowledgements, you thank, um, a poet for a craft lecture that you listened to that helped you with yeah. the closing images. And I was curious about that. Yeah. Kaveh Akbar, who, um, we taught together at the Tin House Writers Workshop one summer it, it was simply that um, he was talking just absolutely beautifully about photosynthesis and um, and about um, trees making sugar out of out of sunshine. And um, I was working on the book and I, you know, I didn't it was not an instant. Oh, my God, that's going in. But I wrote that down. I was like, that is so striking and so, so gorgeous. Um, and then. Uh, got to the place where I, I, you know, was approaching the end of the book and went, you know, that, yeah, that's what I need. I, I want the, the woods are just a huge part of the book. The, these ravines and these bridges that cross this, this river and the botany experiments that these kids were, you know, did in biology class. So ending on this idea of survival and photosynthesis and, plants being creatures that that make their own nutrients in the same way that psychologically this character has been through a lot of stuff basically she's always had to be the one looking out for her own survival it just felt like a fitting image and do you have like something new that's really captivating you like a new obsession right now yeah, i'm working on the new book which is pretty research heavy and the great thing is you know cuz i'm i'm you know pretty uh, got my head in the publicity cloud right now for this one. So I'm, I'm not in a position to write a lot, but I can do research, which is great. And I'm I'm doing this uh, project where I'm reading my way around the world in translation. Um, my, my father died in early 2020 in Hungary, and we weren't able to have a memorial for him, but he was a literary translator, among other things. So um, I decided to just circle the globe reading books in translation and I'm doing 84 books because he lived to be 84. So around the world in 84 books. Um, and I'm on my seventh book right now, which is this Turkish novel 
called Madonna in a fur coat. And um, I, but I'm, I'm uh, writing about it online on, you know, on social media, I have people reading with me and I'm writing about it on my Substack, which is really fun. And and uh, that's going to occupy my reading life for the foreseeable future, which is very exciting. Do you find when you're reading these that they have a different sort of sense of literary yes. craft? Yes. Yeah. Um, in many cases, just less scene-based, if that makes sense. Um, still plenty of plot but less kind of blow by blow filmic scene um, that uh, I find thrilling. Um, I started, I start, I started in Hungary and I'll end there because of my father. And the, the, so the first book I read was The Door by Magda Sabo. And it's, it's this intense relationship between this woman and her cleaning lady. And the first two thirds of the book are all like a character study. Um, it's very little scene. It, we, we get like snippets of scene, but we're not like, and then she said this and then she put her foot down and then she, well, it's just, um, big, you know, exposition description. Um, and it's riveting. It's absolutely riveting. And, and so I'm, I, I've noticed that, you know, um, in, in some of these other books I've read a similar lack of dependence on the scene as a unit. Uh, that I I love, and I don't know if that'll seep into my own writing or not. But I'm I'm very open to it. It's it's really exciting, and I, you know I've been like all I get to read usually is contemporary American fiction because I'm reviewing or I'm blurbing or I'm in conversation with someone, or um, and so this is you know it's not only reading in other traditions, but it's reading things from 1904 or reading poetry or a play <laughs> instead of a novel. And it's so refreshing. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. I avoided this book forever because of my name. Because everyone was like, oh, have you read? I'm like, no. Um, and the same thing when I was a kid, everyone would ask me if I'd read Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, which I still have not read because it annoyed me so much when people asked me that. Um, but then when I finally read this, just the... Um, dark psychological ambiance of this book was just stunning. I think more people know it from the Hitchcock movie at this point, uh, maybe than from reading the book, but um, everyone, a lot of people know the opening line and then I don't necessarily know um, the rest of it. So here, you know, I found a better passage. So, you know, the opening is um, last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again. Most people, a lot of people's knowledge of the book ends there. She's dreaming about this place that has since burned down. So I'm going to skip, I'm going to read from like page three for a second. And I think here's what I'll say. I have an essay coming out soon. It'll be um, for Lit Hub, um, an essay about my, about how setting is not a character. Um, people love to give this compliment of like, your setting is so real. It's almost like a character and it's very sweet. It's always really well-intentioned, but it's not, it's a setting and setting does so much and you got to consider it on its own terms. So this whole essay, but this is an example of this, this is from page three. Nettles were everywhere, the vanguard of the army. They choked the terrace. They sprawled about the paths. They leant vulgar and lanky against the very windows of the house they made indifferent sentinels, for in many places their ranks had been broken by the rhubarb plant, and they lay with crumpled heads and listless stems, making a pathway for the rabbits. I left the drive and went on to the terrace, for the nettles were no barrier to me, a dreamer. I walked enchanted, and nothing held me back. Moonlight can play odd tricks upon the fancy, even upon a dreamer's fancy. As I stood there, hushed and still, I could swear that the house was not an empty shell, but lived and breathed as it had lived before. Light came from the windows, the curtains blew softly in the night air, and there in the library, the door would stand half open as we had left it, with my handkerchief on the table beside the bowl of autumn roses. It's it's just a great use of setting, actual setting. And she, even though she's, she actually almost personifies the house, it's still not a character, it, but it is 
a spectacular setting that, you know, is, um, God, you know, the idea of nettles, the idea of something stinging that surrounds this house. I love, I love the, you know, the interaction with the setting, moving through it. Um, just, it's a, it's a fantastic use. And she does that all, you know, all the way through just beautifully. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky to write or really difficult or changed a lot or something you like. Okay. And, and just for reference here, Lance is her podcast co-host. Jerome is her ex-husband. Um, Omar and Thalia, we covered who they are. And Yahav is the boyfriend who kind of just dumped her. Things constantly on my mind. The next time I'd hear from Lance, whether I should check Twitter, whether I should check my inbox, whether it was time to switch careers or change my name, whether Jerome was sleeping and eating enough that he could safely drive the kids around, whether quitting the podcast would mean I was financially dependent on Jerome again, whether Jerome still had an income for me to depend on. Omar's mother in front of her piano, Thalia's parents at their kitchen table. How quickly I could get to Boston and grab Yahav and convince him to spend just one afternoon in a motel so I could drink in enough of him to last me a few months. What you might have done after you left the theater that night, just moments after you said goodbye to me. What I'd seen as a pile of evidence against Omar quickly turning to sand. The news story, which I couldn't avoid even when I wasn't online. Another woman had come forward. The president called her a dog. Loose ends on the Rita Hayworth episodes I might never finish. The way her flamenco dancer father took her on the road at age four, abusing her physically and sexually, setting her up for a lifetime of terrible relationships. She considered herself a dancer throughout her career, more than an actress, certainly more than a sex symbol. When she was upset, Orson Welles, her second of five husbands, would put on a record of Spanish music and leave her alone to dance out her stress. What happens when your only escape is the same thing you're trying to escape? Here's the soundtrack of your tragedy. Dance to it. I'll say several things about that. That is a chapter. That whole thing is a chapter. Um, several things about the writing of that. One is, that's me. You know, like we said, there's a lot going on in this book. And, you, you know, I have this character who needs to be thinking about all of these things. I can't have her forget about um the case or forget about her husband um so it was it was this chapter that kind of you know instead of spending seven different chapters on all these different things in this moment it was a chapter that came in to sort of like hey here's a refresher on everything that's going on let me tie all these things in yes this character is constantly thinking about all of them Here's what's at stake. And it's it's almost exactly halfway through the book. I just kind of, you know, let's uh, hopefully in an, in an organic way, let's remind everybody of all the stuff that's at stake. What are the balls that are up in the air? What is going on here? So it served that function too, which was the solution to problems I was having with just keeping all of everything, you know, juggled. The Rita Hayworth stuff, I, God, I had so many, I had so much more about her um, in here originally. I had, you know, whole chapters about Rita Hayworth and uh, ended up with just a few of the best things that I, you know, the, the most salient things, the most evocative things that I could get in there. And, uh, you know, I could go, oh God, I could go on all day about her. Like I learned so much about her. You know, there were all these things about these, like, you know, these different husbands, but this this image of you're going to dance to this music because it's the only thing you have, that, that meant something to me. That one was worth keeping. The other thing in that chapter is just the idea that we mentioned this case and it says what more women had come forward. The president called one of them a dog. You know, it's, it's these this idea of this litany of cases that just keeps going. So um just a touch of that in that in that chapter as well. Where do you write? Okay, so I write best at residencies, like artist residencies, like Ragdale, which we we both love. Um, but I only got to use one residency with this book because of the pandemic. So I ended up doing a lot of house sitting. That worked. Um, I actually, other than residencies, I write best on airplanes which I can't rely on on a daily basis. I'll be about, you know, now that I'm going on book tour, I will be able to, but like you're strapped in 
and the Wi-Fi doesn't work even when it's supposed to. And uh, I think for someone with ADHD, just like you're you're in this little tube flying through the air, you're literally strapped to your seat. Someone will bring you snacks. <laughs> the perfect writing environment. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? We honestly, we're living in a golden age of TV. Like there is the most amazing television on. My husband and I just finished Fleischman is in Trouble. I loved White Lotus. Like there are these great shows. Um, I'm never able to fully get away from writing because I'm watching those and I'm thinking about plot structure still. Um, I'm finding examples. I'm like, oh, I should use that example in class. That helps a lot. It, it's It's tough that reading is not an escape from writing. You know, you you sacrifice that when you become a writer, that reading is, you're, you're going to love it more than ever. You're going to appreciate it more than ever, but it's no longer an escape. But TV can still be. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? So it used to be my husband. What I've learned, what we've, he's much better as a kind of a uh, line editor, copy editor. He's an English teacher, but he's not a writer. So I save his reads now for late. And I have a writing group. I have, there are seven of us here in Chicago, um, seven women, all like, you know, really accomplished writers. That's the the group that, you know, I, I tend to show them at the, is this anything phase? And then I tend to show them at the, okay, I have most of a draft. What's, what's wrong with it? Help phase. We're rigorous with each other, which is uh, incredibly helpful. How have you dealt with rejection? And for, I'm, I've never really had a problem. I mean, not, not, I don't mean I have never had a problem as in I've never been rejected. I mean, it's never really bothered me. You, you know, going into this, I think one thing for me when I was in college, um, I, my work study job in college, I don't know how I managed to swing this was that I worked at this college's professional literary magazine, Shenandoah for three years. And so this was the like, you know, real writer sending in stuff and and the the workings of a real professional literary magazine and i was among other things in charge of opening the mail and then i was in charge of putting the rejection slips into the sases because we were still in that era and it was just boxes and boxes and boxes of these rejection slips and i would you know i'd be looking at see the cover letter and the story and i'd be and things from people who had awards and were really well published and i'm still just sticking a rejection slip in that envelope um I'm, you know, I had that experience long before I ever dreamed of sending my work to anyone other than like my school lit mag, you know, which is a different, you know, <laughs> like the student lit mag. Um, so by the time I sent work out into the world, I really understood that it wasn't personal. I understood, you know, just the volume of things that come in. And, um, you know, cer I've certainly had bad days. I've certainly felt snubbed or felt, you know, um, uh, you know, but, but, uh, you applied to things that, you know, early on fellowships or conferences and it didn't work out. Um, but you know, I, I think I, I never, I, I would take, I would, it would hurt my feelings sometimes. I never took it as a sign and, you know, an indictment of my writing because I just, I knew how subjective and how random sometimes and how, um, how much it's just a matter of numbers. Uh, so fortunately had that going in. And what is your favorite word? I really, a while ago, I, I decided that my favorite word must be detritus. I don't particularly like it, but it was showing up in so much of my work. And when I, when I went to put my story collection together, I realized that I'd used the word detritus in like five different stories. <laughs> I went, why, why, what is that? Um, I'm, um, but I'll say in a more emotional way, I'm, um, I'm really working on my Hungarian. Um, I grew up around a lot of Hungarian. I grew up speaking kind of baby talk Hungarian, but it is by most accounts, the most difficult language in the world to learn. And I'm finally just making like a daily concerted effort. And it's, I think I'm getting farther than I ever have. So, um, I'll say I'm, I'm really interested right now in things like, there are two different words for red in Hungarian, like R-E-D. Um, there's one word, pirosh, that's like, it's like, it's kind of like a fun, it, it, I don't think it, I don't think it's actually a difference in color necessarily. It's maybe it's a lighter red, but like you'd use it for like, um, 
like a red blanket or something like that. And then there's this word vurish that's like more like blood red. And so you use it for wine, you use it for blood. It's the word you use for communism, <laughs> that red. <laughs> it's like this emotional kind of red. Um, there's a, a Twitter account that I follow that's like a Hungarian word of the day that was going into this the other day. And I, like, it's, it was something I already knew, but I was like reveling in it. Um, and it's one of these nuances of like, well, you know, what kind of red am I supposed to like, like you, you, you know, if, if you're talking about wine, you have to use the one word and not the other. But if you're talking about a dress, you have to use the other word. And how do you know? Like, is it like normal red or emotional red? <laughs> so the, the coolest thing. I love it. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate um, the conversation and your time. Thank you. If you like today's show with Rebecca Mackay, author of the novel, I have some questions for you. Check out my first interview with Rebecca. We talked about her book, Music for Wartime, balancing the stories in a short story collection, having fun with endings, and shaking characters up so that they change. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Maggie Smith, Clint Smith, Robert Lopez, and Andrew Porter. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.